You're listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. This episode features audio from a previously aired live video webcast. Welcome to Sagas and Sass Season 4, brought to you by Geek Saga Entertainment. I'm Tara, along with fellow host Jonathan and guest hosts Seth and Steve. This episode will cover Break, Part 2 of Golden Sun, the second installment in Pierce Brown's Red Rising Saga. Please note that if you are watching this as a webcast, then there is a chance you will hear some spoilers because we can't keep our mouths shut for other books in the Red Rising series during our live webcast. However, if you are listening to this as a podcast, those bits have been edited out. If you're watching live, join us in the chat or after the fact, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Sagas and Sass or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com to continue the conversation. Additionally, please note that the views expressed on this show are those of the hosts as individuals and do not necessarily represent the show as a whole. And don't forget that we now have a Patreon with 10 tiers ranging from $1 a month to $40 a month. It offers tons of ways to support us and receive some great perks in return. Check it out at patreon.com slash geeksaga underscore entertainment. And now we kick off our discussion of Golden Sun Part 2 with chapters 12 through 16. When last we saw Darrow, he had stalked out of the gala on Luna to have a little tete-a-tete with his intrusive thoughts. Thankfully, this led to him deciding that he would not, in fact, be a big party pooper and bomb the golds per Harmony's demands. And so he stalks back into the gala in the middle of the sovereign speech, no less, to enact his new plan. Which apparently begins with him jumping right up onto the Bologna's table to make a speech of his own. One that highlights the crimes House Bologna has committed against House Augustus and against Darrow himself. And because everything's legal in New Jersey, I'm sorry, wrong story. But dueling is, in fact, legal on Luna. Darrow demands satisfaction in the form of a duel with Cassius. First, though, he has to get the okay from Augustus. Not that it's super difficult, because all Darrow has to do is play to that man's pride by suggesting that he be king of frickin' Mars. Listen, um, this doesn't seem like the best thing to put into the head of someone like Augustus, but Darrow gonna do what Darrow gonna do. So he gets Augustus's blessing, even though Mustang tries to stop him, because remember, everyone has been poking fun at Darrow's lack of talent with the razor, while Cassius legit dueled his way into the morning night position. She ain't gonna stop him now, because he's in a dual mindset. Okay, uh, okay, that doesn't work so well. Uh, anyway, obviously, Cassius wasn't going to apologize after Darrow demanded satisfaction, so dual commandment number one is off the table. And there are no seconds as society duels, and they duel to the death, which all negates dual commandments two through four. Also, this one has to happen right now. So there's no waiting until morning, but seeing as how they're at the top of a tower, at least they've got the high and dry part of commandment five down. Damn, sorry, digressed there a little bit. Okay, back to the duel at hand, because as it begins, the gala guests are getting quite a show. Darrow is probably lasting a little bit longer than anyone thought, but it doesn't look like he's going to last long until with a twist type moment it's revealed that he actually trained with razor master lorne r argos which is kind of like getting lightsaber training from yoda so darrow has actually been taking it easy on cassius as he finally reveals his own prowess taunting the entire bologna family as he goes along their patriarch barely holds him back 
even as their matriarch urges her kin to help her favored son. And then, and then, the Sovereign makes a big mistake. Huge. That being, she reveals her favoritism by attempting to amend the rules, saying that the duel will not be to the death, but to yielding. As Augustus and some of his allies, including the Telemannuses, yes, those Telemannuses, uh, family to Pax, uh, rest in peace, Telemannus, expresses their offense. Darrow, the man of action that he is, presses the duel and straight up cuts Cassius's sword arm off. Of course, a full-on battle between the two factions ensues, in which Darrow kills Cagney, yes! Victor protects Darrow from Antonia, yes, queen! Mustang, separated from them all, commands Darrow to protect her father, and Leto is killed when he tries to face down Carnus. Let's just say that the jackal helped that happen. Ugh. Everyone is trying to flee from the carnage, and while Darrow and his allies do escape, there are more consequences to his actions than he could have ever imagined. Other family feuds are finding their own satisfaction, and as they escape the tower, they witness members of House Falth annihilating House Thorn, even stomping in the heads of the children. Upsetting as all of this is, at least there's a moment of relief when Darrow et al. make it to their hangar, until they realize their ship is gone and are then set upon by a whole fuck ton of Praetorians and the Rage Knight, who is none other than Fitchner. Unfortunately, he's no ally this time around, as he stuns both Augustus and the Jackal and insists that Darrow has to come with him to attend the Sovereign. Fitchner does at least assure Darrow that his friends won't be hurt, as the Sovereign can't exactly execute an entire house prior to at least trying them for treason. So Darrow agrees to go with him. Not that he's given any decent choices when he confronts the Sovereign. They meet in her office with Fitchner, Mustang, the Protean Knight, aka the Sovereign's Fury and so-called sister, Aja, and her grandson, Lysander, in attendance. The Sovereign wants Darrow to join her, and when he refuses, because hell yeah, he is no trophy, she brings out the box. What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, there are these things called oracles, horrifying carved animals that are part pit viper and part scorpion, and who the fuck knows what else, and they latch themselves onto the arms of both Darrow and the Sovereign, ready to strike if either of them lies. So a game ensues in which they ask each other questions and reveal all sorts of information until Darrow gets to ask his final question, that being, tonight at the gala, during the sixth course of the meal, did you plan to allow the Bologna to assassinate Arch-Governor Augustus and all those who sat at his table? And this bitch, even with the oracle attached to her arm, seriously has the gall to lie, saying, no, I did not. Thankfully for her, but not anyone else, Fitchner is fast enough to save her. Mustang, however, is enraged, demanding to know why the Sovereign lied when she said she promised she would not hurt Mustang's family. The Sovereign tells her that the removal of House Augustus needs to be a reminder, because supposedly the sons of Ares have spread outside of Mars, and it's Augustus's fault because, you know, he's the one who hanged the very woman the sons have used to start waves and all of this. Mustang considers this and then admits that the man she knew as her father is, if not literally, then figuratively dead and that the Sovereign can do with Nero Augustus as she likes. So Darrow returns to the gala and stalks toward Cassius, interrupting the Sovereign's speech because, as we said, Darrow gonna Darrow and be super extra. <laughs> I love this passage. It's one of the ones that I actually used in one of our Sundays with Sass quotes, so if you don't follow us, you missed that. But 
The Bologna notice the whispers now and they turn almost as one, a family of 50 and more to see me, a martial man all in black, young, untested in war, unblooded beyond the halls of the Institute and the asteroids of the Academy. Some have reasoned me mad, some have called me brave. Tonight, I'm both. The weight is gone. All the pressure I let crush me as I worried about expectations, as I gentle-footed around making a decision. All velocity, I tell myself, don't freeze, don't stop, never stop. But they're not scared of him because they think he's like useless with a razor. They honestly think he probably cracked. I do love the fact that this is Darrow's viewpoint. So this is him making an assumption. But I love the part where it's like, unblooded outside of the Institute. Are are you kidding me? (laughs) Oh, he hasn't killed anybody in war. That means he's completely not dangerous. Are you? What? (laughs) Yeah. Also, um, man, I I know the world's not screaming for it, but... uh, Damned if my my brain isn't telling me that there's a My Bologna parody to be written. <laughs> it's the it's world there. might not be screaming for it, but we are. Yeah. <laughs> so he confronts Mustang and straight up asks her if she's a trophy, meaning like Cassius's trophy, and he questions her serving the sovereign. And it's funny because in part one he was saying, "I know Mustang wouldn't be with Cassius." If she didn't care about him, but now he's being all schnee about it. <laughs> so is this a, just another move of his, right? Just like him playing the game again? Because like Mustang isn't gonna, she doesn't, she's not gonna have any part in this real life, really. Yeah. So I don't think he's smooth enough at this because what is he right now? Like 19, 20? Yeah. 20, I think. Yeah. 20, I think. Yeah. He he's not smooth enough to play the game with Mustang. I, now, I think she might be smooth enough to play the game with him, but I don't think he can ask her this question as part of a larger strategy. I, I think he's asking this question because he is bitter and he is hurt and that is his ex and she's now with his arch rival. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. I think that uh, he's he's moving these other pieces and trying to make these plays with these other uh, characters in the story, uh, but he he just he can't do that with her because she's just a little bit too close, a little bit too important to him. And also so political herself. I mean, and she just I mean, she sort of asks him if he's insane. Yeah. And it's he just looks at Cassius and is like, are you insane? And so very much like, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, but, but it's, I don't know. Mustang's my, uh, Mustang's my ride or die in this series. Mm. I like Darrow. He's great. But no, Mustang, please and thank you. Is there a double entendre in that statement? <laughs> no. No, there is not. I don't love Darrow all that much, honestly. I have I have a lot of problems with Darrow. I, I'm, I'm definitely, I love Mustang a lot, and I love Victra a lot, a lot, but... Victor, uh, I like in spite of both myself and herself. <laughs> yeah, agreed. For sure. But I mean, Mustang is like, I'm not a bitch in heat. I protect my family. Yeah. Who do you protect but yourself? He's throwing it out there and she's throwing it back with like 10 pounds of weights attached, you know? <laughs> and then she herself is also in a difficult situation because, I mean, what do you do when you have a, a brother like Adrius, you know? Like, Ugh. do you, you, do you love him? him? Do you defend? Yeah, do you kill him? <laughs> no, you serve him up naked to your boyfriend and yeah. 
and let him kill him, but Daryl failed. Yeah. yeah. Twice. Twice. Uh, yep. He had the opportunity and didn't take it. Did not. Oh. Well, that that is 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 to me one of, of Darrow's major flaws. He does have this weird need to believe in either the the best in people or that he can redeem them somehow. Like that, if yeah. they just start working for him and they just get on board with his program, then everything's going to be fine. And then he's also kind of a, a procrastinator with his relationships. Like Mustang, he's just kind of letting that kind of float out there. Maybe it'll work itself out. Uh, Roke, they're, you know, constantly frayed connections there. If there is one thing I'm annoyed about in this book, it's that Darrow, every other page is like, nah, I really put, I keep putting off talking to Roke. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, and he's also just, he's so obsessed with Cassius still. Like, yeah, y'all are friends for like a hot minute at the institute, and then this dude tried to kill you, and you are just obsessed. Yeah, but he, with but it. Cassius was justified. Yeah. Was he though? No, we have the this conversation thing. every yeah. fucking episode. I still think he was somewhat justified because maybe it would have been worse. But I, based on what they had gone through, Darrow should have told him in advance. But he's a procrastinator. I'll I'll, I'll tell him eventually. (laughs) Yeah, again, I've even had this conversation and I've only been on once for this series. But it's 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 just like Cassius needs to get over himself. Like the 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 he's he's got an alternative to his current mindset. And that is realizing that his society is sick and wrong. And I realize it's a big step for him to make. But that's the step he needs. It's just so difficult when he's got uh, just such a gigantic family that's leaning the other way. And then the matriarch that's like uh, literally hasn't been eating. Can I get a heart? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so Cassius actually like starts messing with Darrow about Mustang. Oh, I've had her in ways you never did. Like, first of all, fucking male posturing. Yeah. So so you mean that doesn't work? (laughs) Well, I don't know, because Darius is right there listening to Cash just say this stuff, and he's like, he's just saying this to hurt me. He's not a bad man. He's just <laughs> my bad man. And it's like... Yeah, I also just want to point out that both of them, like, first of all, how... This is an unintentional quasi-pun. How dare Darrow? How dare he <laughs> think for a minute that Mustang is going to be anyone's trophy mm-hmm. and the other thing is Cassius, your girlfriend's right there dude you think she's not gonna dump you for being like this she's gonna dump you for being like this yeah i think she's she gonna, can't they're hear gonna, him well all right but i mean it's seriously like she hears that he did that she's gonna be like you had me in so many ways okay well you're gonna have me in one more goodbye once again i have a very high opinion of mustang and it is borne out by the way she's written thank you Oh, no, she's great. And you're right. Yeah. Like, absolutely. If she found out that he said these things. Yeah. But Cassius is talking smack to Darrow. And Darrow's all like, he's not he's not a bad man. He's just my bad man. <laughs> Ugh, whatever, dude. But Cassius straight up, he thinks he's going to kill Darrow. Darrow sucks with the razor, right? Like, everybody, yeah. I mean, even his friends. Well, friends, Cactus, you know, whatever, are making bets about how long he will last or whatever. But again, it turns out that Darrow was the last student of the legendary Lord O. Arcos, bitches! So... 
they start their duel. It looks like Cassius is going to win, and Daryl, but Daryl's just like playing with him. And I love the fact that he remembers one of Lorne's sayings, one of his many sayings: "A fool pulls the leaves, a brute chops the trunk, a sage digs the roots." And then he goes after Cassius's legs. I love that Pierce was able to insert like a really good quote there and then also show the action of that saying of that idea and then plus just the fight scene itself it talks about going in like numbered sequences like uh, Cassius comes at with seven moves and then uh, when Darrow comes back at him he's uh, switching between 13 and four and you know so it's it's almost like a like a synopsis of what Darrow is himself he's something that's outside of the normal of this gold society that's like going to be the end of it. And again, like he thinks about, Darrow thinks about how he was taught to move by his uncle and to kill by a legend. Mm -hmm. Like you said, he goes into those moves, he goes into the willow way, pretty fluid, like a spring song in defense, then lashing and horrible as the branches of a willow in deep winter, as glacial winds scream down from the mountains. Inside me, red meets gold. I'm literally getting chills just reading that quote. <laughs> the inside me, red meets gold part always does it for me. <laughs> I was both disappointed by one thing and then not disappointed because given what Pierce tends to do, the fact that Darrow pulled this off and somebody else didn't have a counter scheme immediately ready, kind of nice. The fact that it all happened off page, kind of annoying. Oh, him training with Yeah, like, I I don't think it adds anything for it to be a surprise to us. Yeah, the way the book is written is the fact that it's all one point of view that does get a little weird. It's like, so we missed this entire year of this very important thing happening? Okay. There were no (laughs) flashbacks? Okay. Well, maybe he didn't think it was that important. Yeah, I'm... Yes. (laughs) Maybe he just really wanted to surprise us, like... It also reminds me of a Zen parable where a student goes to a a sword master and says, how I wish to learn the sword. How long is it going to take me? And the master's like, well, it's going to take you 10 years. Because like 10 years, that's ridiculous. Well, I mean, I don't. Okay, what if I quit everything and I just focus on the sword? All right. It'll take you 20 years. Okay, no. Okay, look. All right. I'm going to quit everything. I'm going to leave my family. I'm going to I'm going to barely eat. I'm just going to work on the sword. 30 years. So the fact that Darrow picked this up in a year is also a little bit like this is a weird reference to pull in. But this happened in a Green Arrow comic, too. They did a year (laughs) gap and all of a sudden he's fighting Deathstroke sword to sword with no problems. And I'm like, now, wait a minute now. Cassius has been training in this for years. Darrow's had a year. But, you know. Darrow gonna be Darrow. He has a year with Yoda. Luke Skywalker had like a couple months oh, at most with Yoda. So you could also say uh use your parable the other way around. The Bologna have their kids forge their own razors, uh sleep with them, uh train with them night and day. So like if they're being if all this is being forced, if it's not a labor of love, then yeah, like do you do you have a ceiling basically? I I, I now have like this image of the Bologna kids getting up every morning. This is my razor. There are many like it, but this one is mine. (laughs) In the midst of this, Darrow is absolutely like eviscerating Cassius. It's clear he's going to win. And then here comes the fucking Sovereign thinking that she can just change the rules of dueling so her little baby baby Cassius doesn't die. And everybody's shocked. All I got to say is 
the telemonises, all the telemonises. <laughs> I hear at this point it's just it's just Daxo and, and Kavix, but they're just sticking up for Darrow and the Augustus family and being like, Sauron, like, uh, you can't just change the law right yeah. now. And this bitch, lol, this bitch. You fail to remember my word is law. Uh, well, she's right, though. In her society, she is. That's the whole point of being a dictator. <laughs> well, but the point is, like, she is a dictator, but she's not supposed to be. It's one of those things where, yes, in a way, she is a dictator, right? But the golds, they refuse to see her as that. Her changing the law, especially in the middle of a duel, is something you do not do. Darrow says uh, gold can't rule over other golds. You can declare your rule, but do it at your own peril. And the sovereign has ruled for so long that she's forgotten that her words are not law. Her saying in the midst of this, I'm going to change the rules, that's a challenge, not just to Darrow, but to society as a whole. And it's like, okay for you to have a favorite kid, but you shouldn't tell them. You know what I mean? Yeah, Yeah, and and she's like, she's a dictator, but her power rests on the privilege and the prestige of her class. And when she challenges that, that's when she has a problem. I also just want to, I think at this point, I I can safely point out, that not to go on a huge rant about gold society because i've got one it's queued up it's ready to go at any time <laughs> the the only need for iron golds is because there are other iron golds out there there's no alien force there is no outside anything that is going to threaten them it's just that one iron gold decided they were more irony than another iron gold and has decided to, to start a civil war what is more irony than iron it's a steel gold you're steel <laughs> gold <laughs> You're iron, but you're more flexible. I don't know. One of the things that I'm like, because in the books, it's been 700 years, I think, since this society. And I'm like, Conquest, yeah. I keep asking myself, could this society have lasted for 700 years? I realize they've got all the technology they want, but they have civil wars anytime somebody turns their back because one faction thinks they're more powerful than another. That's it. That's all they do. That's what they do for fun. I guess the rim when they rebelled wasn't for fun. It was because they were like, we're our own people. Yeah. But they got fucked. So. Yeah. yeah. So Darrow cuts off Cassius's sword arm, but he doesn't get to kill him. Big old fight yeah. breaks out. Everybody's fighting everybody. But nobody, nobody important dies, right? Yeah. Cagney really. dies good riddance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Poor Cagney. Oh, poor Cagney. <laughs> Do you really feel bad for Cagney, Jonathan? Do poor we... Leah. Lita. Is it Leto or Leo? Oh, Leto. No, but he he does not die, you know. like Well, he's again. murdered by Adrius. Right. For fuck's sake, Darrow. He's like, oh, no, I made a deal with the devil after he sees yeah. the jackal. He's got like a little stylus yeah, a little that styler. apparently has yeah. poison darts in it. Yeah. And Darrow's like, oh, no, I made a deal with the devil. And it's like, dude, what? Like <laughs> I'm that John Travolta gif at Darrow right now. Like, yeah, or or like that angry basketball fan in the stands. <laughs> like, <laughs> but seriously, I I will say Lido. Well, he wasn't important because we only knew him. Rip, we only knew him for a short period of time. He seemed like a really good guy. Yeah, he really did. Definitely. Like, he was even sticking up for Darrow when Augustus and Pliny were being shitheads to him in mm-hmm. the first part of this book. So it sucks that 
poor Leto had to die. And again, you know, here's Jackal showing his true colors yet again with his always present stylist with his paralyzing agent darts or whatever. And then later, you know, just to continue the conversation about the Jackal, when the fault dancers are legit stomping on the heads of children and Victra is mm-hmm. tearing up over it like a normal person with empathy would. The Jackal also scoffs and he's like, oh, like... It's so sad. And Darrow's over here like, he's faking it. He doesn't mean it. Don Darrow. It's like he like forgets to write all these things down. Yeah. (laughs) Take notes, Darrow. I mean, the only thing preventing him from being uh, Ernst Jackal Blofeld is that he doesn't have a bevy of attractive and possibly deadly women hanging around him at all times. He is a Bond villain. Now you say that. But speaking of deadly women, when you say the Jackal doesn't have deadly women around him, side note, uh, some of the members of House Vault also try to ambush Tactus, which out of the blue, that seems, honestly. But yeah. regardless, he kills all but one of them. And the one who lives is fucking Lilith. He kills all but her. And we know that she was the Jackal's right-hand person in the Institute. So I do want to say that as much as Tactus is kind of a questionable person because, mm. you know, A, he's betting on Darrow and whether or not he's going to live. And he's like, oh, he'll, he'll last like a whole 10 days. <laughs> and then even in part one, when their ship gets rammed by one of Carnus's ships, mm-hmm. Tactus runs off. He ejects the escape pod before Darrow can get in it. So Tactus, not a great person, right? But he is also so upset about what he saw them doing like he's literally just slashing at them killing them just attacking them calling them baby killers and victra has to pull him away and in that moment i couldn't help but love tactus a little bit yeah and i just want to point out that if you are going to do that kind of thing it is helpful not to show off and demand a confession even when your opponent is down. i'm just <laughs> I'm not referencing anything in particular. I'm I'm just saying. Oh. That, you know. But where is the fun in not having the villain lecture us about their plan? I know, but uh, I'm just saying rip the red viper. That's all I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> the House Augustus gets back to where their shuttle is supposed to be and it's gone. And this is, again, something that we talked about before where... Pierce Brown does a really great job of it's not show don't tell it's telling, but he inserts it in such a way that you don't feel like you're being talked at because the Praetorians land and here comes the rage Knight. And in this instance where the rage Knight stomps down and his helmet and everything, you don't know who he is quite yet. There's this just brief, you know, there are 12 Olympic Knights in the solar system. They're sworn to protect the compact of the society against those who would defy it. And they represent what the golds see as the dominant themes of man, the same as their schoolhouses did. You get that little bit about the Olympic Knights because we've heard about the Rage Knight. We've heard about the Morning Knight, right? We've heard about a few of them but you don't really know what the reasoning behind it is. So we get that little bit of world building there, but then, you know, it's kind of 
broken entirely. It's like, oh, this should be important. This little bit of world building. I mean, it is important, but it's less important because then the Rage Knight like pulls off his helmet and it's fucking Fitchner. Yeah, yeah, of course. Fitchner, who was the lowest of the low, really, at least the way that we've been told about him so far. And Fitchner drags Darrow off to meet with the Sovereign. I guess he promises that his friends won't be hurt, but, you know, we'll get into what happens with that in a little bit. So Darrow meets with the Sovereign, and he's in this room with her and Fitchner, and do you guys pronounce it Aja or Asia, actually? Uh, there's a woman at work with that spelling, and she goes by Asia, but I don't know. I've always said Aja. I've always said Asia, but then I've listened to a total of two Red Rising podcasts that are like strictly Red Rising, and they all pronounce it Aja. See, this is why we need like Nick or Nami here, because they listen to the audiobook. So Darrow is stuck in this meeting, this official meeting with the Sovereign, and he's thinking that she has clung to power and will cling to power for far too long. A king is supposed to reign and then die. And that's how the young justify obeying their elders, knowing that one day they will get to take their turn. But she's ruled for, you know, X amount of years. She may rule for a hundred more. And she asks Darrow why he disobeyed her. And he's just like, because I could. Essentially, yeah. When she changed her mind to protect Cassius, so many of the people in that room or on that rooftop, essentially, immediately rejected her authority because she contradicted mm -hmm. herself, which showed weakness, and Darrow exploited that weakness. She doesn't like uh, being told that she showed weakness, for sure. So when Darrow then also is like, oh, I should like to apologize. And the Sovereign is like, an apology is insufficient. And he's like, no, 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 no. I said I would like to apologize, but I'm not going to because you need to apologize to me. I mean, this whole thing, because then she's so full of herself and her power that she spurns the idea of apologizing him and continues on her whole, like, I am the law chick. Which again, big mistake. Huge. She has been getting high on her own supply of power. She's just sure, huffing sure. it every day. Here's the thing. She thinks, not only does she think she she's untouchable, I get the very strong impression whenever she shows up that she thinks that she is as good as her granddad and she's not. Well, hasn't she had 50 years apiece? She yeah. nuked a moon and there's a low level, low color rebellion happening. So. Yeah. I think you could perhaps, if you wanted to draw some, I mean, it is definitely not a complete match, but you could draw some parallels between uh, the Sovereign and Cersei. Yeah, um, she's not as nutball crazy as Cersei, but no. she certainly has that thirst for power. And also that sense of Cersei basically thinks that she could do anything. Entitlement. Yeah. yeah, exactly. She's like, well, I'm here and no one can stop me now. And it's like, what are you going to do? And then sort of the reality of life catches up and, you know, it's not good. And maybe the Sovereign's going to nuke a bunch of moons and maybe Cersei's going to blow up an entire city to prove a point. It's definitely understandable. I mean, she's been kind of killing it for such a long time. She worked out whatever deals she had to work out to uh, depose her father. And uh, then since then, she's just been kind of kicking ass and she's obviously just crazy intelligent you know, like moves ahead but um so it's, it's understandable that she thinks that she's like above everything i do think a lot of it is the people who are behind her though she has the ash lord who nuked raya sure. and she has asia aja however mm -hmm. the fuck you pronounce 
it. Aja herself is so fucking badass, right? She is incredible. She's the baddest of badasses. Yeah. Like, I want to see this in movie or TV form live action so that Denai Guerrera can play her. And I know that a lot of that is just because I'm picturing Denai Guerrera from <laughs> the yes. Dora oh, okay. in Black Panther. And she is super badass. And that is who I picture in this role. Honestly, For she's sure. probably too short, but that's who I picture this role. Everyone in Hollywood is too short. Everyone is too short to be a gold. That's probably why the TV series idea failed. It's probably why every we couldn't this, find actors. Yeah, the, I, I feel like if we get this as a live action anything, the height thing is going to change, and I'm okay with that. Honestly, yeah, I, the, we are only getting this as a live action anything if all of the current epic fantasy shows continue to do gangbusters because i can only imagine what the budget on this thing would have to be insane the sovereign is so full of herself though that she asks darrow to leave augustus and join her and darrow is just so on point this entire meeting like (laughs) he asks her why would you want a man who so easily trades his allegiance that would mean i'm little more than a common whore i'm an aureate i am not a trophy and uh, this whiny i can say and do whatever i want and own whatever I, whoever i want bitches <laughs> all if i can't have you no one can she basically says that she says that if i can't have yeah. you no one can well it, this is the thing she might be massively intelligent she is she might be incredibly ruthless she is but she's not using it correctly she's not putting in the planning right she's not playing 10th dimensional chess She's just like, I'm here, I've been here, I can do what I want, right? She has no plans for Darrow. This whole scene is her improvising and hoping it's going to work out. If you look at it from like the standpoint of golds, though, like if Darrow was anything but a red that was made into a gold that was meant to find his way in and destroy the system from within, a gold from a random asteroid mining family, and you you were put into the situation, you're working for Nero Augustus, and the frickin' ruler of the gold says, hey, join my team. I have your girlfriend. She's already on my side. Or your wannabe girlfriend. Like, it's a pretty good offer. I could see why she would be so confident. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's that. There are definitely a few golds. I actually, I, uh, I, I mean, I know we all have feelings about old Cassius, but I don't think he'd take the deal. I think he is... But I think he has that family to anchor in. That I don't, yeah. yeah. And certainly Lauren's not going to take the deal, but Lauren is. No, no, he's he's already well-established. He's a man apart. Well, then, like, Asia comes in and is like, we don't ever lie. Lies are rust on iron, Mm. a blemish on power. Like, ha, ha. Darrow, when he thinks power, they're so drunk on, they can't even remember how many lies they stand upon. Mm-hmm. tell my people you don't lie you brutish bitch and see what they do to you and it's like oh Darrow, your people couldn't do anything to Aja. you can literally have like 50 reds swarming aja and she would just i think they have a chance if they've got some hell diver rigs maybe aja is oh she's something no else. i know they bring out the oracles after aja is like oh we don't lie and first of all those things are fucking creepy right super super like, creepy part scorpion part Pit Viper, so many peas. Part centipede, three blind eyes apiece. They so move weird. like liquid glass, organs and skeleton visible through the skin. Chitinous yeah. mouths chattering in his. Oh God, chitinous. That word chitinous, like <laughs> chitinous. Super reminiscent just... of like the Ganjabar scene. Yeah. From- yes. Yeah. I was just thinking that. Yes. 
And then they latch onto you and can sense if you're lying and, you know, I guess will like sting you with their poisonous scorpion tail if you do, which like, oh God, never put one of those things on me. Like, not that I lie, but I'd be so fucking anxious <laughs> about saying the wrong thing. Highlights from this little game that they play. Only about 0.33, 0.33% of golds are peerless scarred. I did the math. 132,689 of nearly 40 million golds. The Sovereign's greatest fears are that her grandson, Lysander, will grow up to be like her father. Not like you, you stupid bitch. Okay. <laughs> and the inevitability of old age. You're already old. Darrow cried when he killed Julian because Julian was kinder than the world let him be. Pour one out for Julian right here. Also, she's so gross when she thinks that Darrow would actually ask her to give Mustang to him mm -hmm. if he joins uh... Team Sovereign. Good for him for saying she is not a thing to be given. And the Sovereign just kind of scoffs at it. And it's like, bitch, have you met this person? Yeah, I don't know. There might have been a scene that we don't see because Darrow's not there where she casually tosses off the suggestion that Cassius and Mustang would make a good couple. And then from that takes credit for giving Mustang to Cassius or what have you. Then Darrow asks his last question. Yep. And it's asking her if she planned on allowing the Bologna to assassinate Augustus and everyone at his table. And she actually tries to lie. You know what's going to happen. Yeah, I, th I think that says a lot about where her mind is. Like, she thinks she can fool these creepy bug things. Or she's counting on Fitchner or somebody to do what Fitchner does. Maybe somebody. I don't know that I'd count on Fitchner. If, no, you know, I wouldn't just... count on Fitchner. No. <laughs> I mean, he's the one who saves her, which boo, hiss. For real, though, I do think she knew. The way the passage reads is that she very calmly says it, but she has to know that this mm -hmm. creature is still going to call her out for it, oh, essentially. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, she just doesn't care. She believes she will be saved by somebody. And she doesn't think it matters because no matter what, she has Darrow in her power. He's there with her. Then there's Mustang, who, you know, she angie <laughs> at first. <laughs> she is for sure. But then she just gives in. However, like she is also tossing a gold ring around and then like putting it on her finger. And it was very specifically said earlier on that Darrow gave her a gold ring with a horse head on it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he notes that specifically. That was one of the moments where I was like, I don't believe a word Mustang is saying. Why would you be like literally holding out your hand and just sliding? He, he put a ring on it. <laughs> In this case, she put a ring on it. And I think Darrow knew in that moment that she was on his side. And then plus he picked like the perfect time. Mustang walks in. He asks that question. So the Sovereign is still alive, Ugh, unfortunately. But Darrow is also still alive. Yay. Which means <laughs> it's on to chapters 17 through 20. Darrow is escorted to his quarters, left alone. Oh, wait, nope. There's a pink lounging in his bed. Not that he's about to do anything about or with her, as he scoffs at the opulence of his rooms and tries to ignore the naked pink. His thoughts are interrupted when another pink arrives with a box containing a holocube. Both pinks leave, and he activates the holocube, which contains a message from Mustang screaming, Take cover! The power goes out, and then he hears it howling. It's Severo and friends come to rescue him, and oh, he's brought a present, 
a bag rather than a box this time. Not that we get to find out what's in the bag just yet. Instead, they fly back to the villa occupied by House Augustus. And they don't like what they find. It seems empty, deserted, until they find a room with more than 20 pinks, browns, and violets who tried to hide, and they've all been murdered. Still, everything seems silent, but turns out it's just a whole bunch of jam fields silencing the fighting that is going on elsewhere in the villa. Darrow, Severo, and the Howlers fight their way through a fuck ton of greys and eventually confront an obsidian <laughs> and a praetorian. Darrow demands to see Aja, who is just chilling by a lagoon, because apparently the remaining members of House Augustus are hiding at the bottom of it. Good thing Darrow has brought some leverage, though. After getting in a few pokes at Aja, he opens it and pulls out Lysander, heir to the morning throne. Darrow gives his ultimatum. Let him and his allies leave Luna, or he will kill the boy. Because, hey, Aja would kill an entire family to ensure the safety of her sovereign. All Darrow has to do is kill a boy to ensure the safety of his friends. With this hanging over her head, Aja allows the Howlers to rescue the members and allies of House Augustus from the lagoon. A ship is already there, and they all ascend to it. Though there's a catch. The Sovereign speaks through Aja, threatening Darrow. And as the last Howler, Quinn, begins to rise, Aja grabs hold of her and beats her within an inch of her life. Now, of course, Darrow dives back to scoop her up, but he's beaten to the punch. Oof. Probably a little bit too soon for that cliche. By the Jackal, who gets Quinn up to their escape shuttle and immediately begins to attempt to treat her. Which seems a little bit out of character, but hey, he's been apparently trying to help Darrow deal with other things. Granted, Tactus stops Darrow and Sever on their way to the flight, flight cabin and kind of talks a little shit about Qu the Quinn situation, which leads to Severo rightfully beating the shit out of him. Favorite part. Uh, eventually, Darrow makes it to the cockpit where he gets to see Kavix loving on Mustang because, aw. While Augustus actually has the balls to question Severo's loyalty, but Severo doesn't really take offense to it. He's just his normal snarky self. Lysander is there too, of course. But Augustus uh, apparently doesn't want him around for the hashtag real talk and asks Victra, you know, the only woman present other than Mustang, to take the kiddo to the passenger hold. Tactus actually offers to do it instead, which Victra is obviously grateful for. But before the powers that can be really start discussing their next step, a light starts blinking on the console and it's only a moment before Darrow realizes why. Fucking Tactus is escaping with Lysander. We'd pause for dramatic effect, but what's the point? This means they have a couple of minutes at best before they're set upon by the Society's warships. Darrow is kicking himself for not knowing that Tactus would betray them like this, but he quickly formulates a new plan and orders the Blue who is piloting their shuttle to take them near to the Vanguard, a.k.a. the biggest ship hanging out in orbit because he's now finally going to get to do what he wanted to do to Karnas' ship back at the Academy, load himself into a star shell and get shot right into the bridge of an enemy's warship. But not alone this time, Severo is with him. They are launched through space. Darrow sees the shock and fear of those on the Vanguard's bridge, and then they smash through its glass. Oh, gosh. So Darrow <laughs> being shut up in his quarters, and oh, I'm trapped by opulence. Uh, uh. <laughs> The biggest thing I pulled from this was that as he feels trapped by this opulence, he misses the House Mars castle at the Institute, like that dirty, cold castle. He misses the mines. He thinks about being with Eo, but at the same time, he cannot think only of the red girl. When he sees the moon, he thinks of the sun. 
Mustang burns in his thoughts. If Eo smelled of rust and soil, then the golden girl is fire and autumn leaves. I just, oh, Daryl, you weird romantic, you. He's got the soul of a teenage poet. <laughs> I guess so does Pierce uh, Brown, right? Yeah, I, mean, I do love the comparison because Darrow is constantly comparing EO to Mustang. And personally, I am a Mustang stan more than an EO stan. I mean, I don't think we got to know. I mean, like, we've talked about this. Like, I think I think it would have been interesting if Darrow had been the one who died and EO had been the one who was co-opted to lead the revolution. But anyway, we're both Mustang stands. That's I just like that when Darrow thinks about how, oh, like I wish I could only remember EO so I could be like one of those knights of legend, a man so in love with one loss that he closes his heart to, to all others. Like, I will say he, at least he recognizes he's not that. He's just a boy. Yeah, I was going to say, speaking as uh, someone who is polyamorous, that's not the way it works, but that's... I mean, that's yeah. not the way it works. Yeah. It, ever. It's just, yeah. <laughs> I have been with and lost so many relationships and even the ones I didn't choose to end... Man, it's been years. I think it's because she died, right? Yeah, yeah. That he still feels this way. But I also I also like that he has that sort of loyalty to her. When he feels dirt, he honors Eo. And then when he sees fire, he remembers yes. the warmth and flicker of the flames across Mustang's skin as they lay <laughs> in their chamber of ice and snow. Darrow, again, gets too full of himself. When they finally fight through everybody, they've seen all these dead low colors that have been left behind. And they know that they have the members of House Augustus trapped with who knows how much air left at the bottom of this lagoon. And Darrow gets too full of himself. You know, he's like, tell the sovereign that we of Mars do not bow so easily. And the sovereign speaks through Aja saying, oh, that's what the governor of Rhea said when my Ashler came to put down his rebellion. He sat upon his ice throne in his famed glass palace and asked one of my servants, who are you to breathe fear into a man such as I? I who descended from the family that carved heaven from a place where once there was nothing but a hell of ice and stone. Family did it, not the reds he brought along. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. Who are you to make me bow? Go home to Luna, go home to the core. The outer reach is for creatures of sterner spines. Now, to be fair, he's not wrong about the last part there, but... The governor of Rhea did not bow. Now his moon is ash. His family is ash. He is ash. And the sovereign through Aja tells Darrow, so run, run home to Mars, for my legions will follow you to the ends of this universe. And even though they have pulled all of their house members and friends out of the lagoon, Quinn doesn't make it because Aja beats her nearly to death. That is because of setup. I will not say anything else, but that is because of setup. Oh, absolutely. And it's also like, because there's no particular reason for it to happen. It's like, oh, catch one and, and beat him to death because we know that he can't do anything because if he kills Lysander, then he's lost his ace. But it, one of the things it does underscore for me, not that we needed this underscored, but how pointlessly violent and cruel gold is mm -hmm. all the time. There's no reason to do this. It doesn't gain anybody anything. It doesn't tell Darrow anything he doesn't already know. It's just like, it can hurt one of your people. Me. Yeah, they're calling his bluff. That's what they're doing. 
at that point, probably he should have flown back up to the shuttle and just killed Lysander in retaliation. But then they would have shot that ship right out of the sky. Yeah, I guess. What he should have done was stayed and guarded Quinn's retreat. I mean, he was like kind of right there, but yeah, it was, it was, God, fucking Aja. Yeah. Before we get into the next point, side, side note, when they get up to the shuttle, and the jackal is like offering to help care for Quinn and he demands someone hand him a data pad. So Darrow does. <laughs> I find it so hilarious that Darrow is like, oh, he pauses for a second when he sees my distinctive hands. Like, what? Ah, the hands. We're back the to the hands. hands again. Is Pierce Brown to hands as Quentin Tarantino is to feet? <laughs> There's a lot of hands. Well, and it's always Darrow's hands, though. Yeah. He's got very special hands. They're the best of hands. He's nobody can hands. nobody can match with his hands. They're not tiny. Well, they're the hands. fastest they're big of hands. hands. <laughs> they're the fastest of hands, right? From when he was yeah. a diver. Yeah, oh, fast Lord. and nimble. But like now they're gold hands. I don't know. Whatever. How are they distinctive? Okay, whatever. Fine. Then we get into the cockpit and Augustus is there with Lysander. And Augustus is like, I'm only a monster when it's practical. I don't think I will have to be this time. We're just trying to get home. As long as your grandmother permits our passage, you'll be safe. Lysander is like, grandmother says you're a liar. And Augustus is like, ironic. <laughs> Augustus is like, I'm only a monster when I need to be. Like when two reds are in a garden and one oh, of them God. sings a song. Well, I'm now the devil's advocate. Was that him being a monster or just considering red sub you? Uh, I believe the one goes along with t'other. Yeah, yeah. Of course, then he orders Victor to take Lysander to the passenger hold because she's a woman. For that moment when Tactus is all, you know, oh, I see you, I see you mad about this and I'll do it instead. You know, I've not seen my brothers in a long time. I, I wouldn't mind talking with this kid. Victra is like, yeah, absolutely, blah, blah, blah. And he like winks at Victra, punches Darrow's shoulder, pats Lysander <laughs> so roughly on the head that he almost knocks the kid down. And Darrow's like, hmm, I hate to know his brothers. Uh, of course, this is all a ploy on Tactus's part and he escapes with Lysander in tow to return to the Sovereign, which just, seriously, God damn it, Tactus. <laughs> you just fought your way out of the gala with your friends, and now you're just like, mm, I'm gonna fuck you over. And I know, I know, there's the whole thing about his family, and they're like, don't be in Darrow's shadow, but like, it's that hog wallet blood. He's such a dick. <laughs> I feel sad and bad for Tactus in so many ways. He's clearly a product of his trauma. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you could say that that is true of all gold. Uh, it's true of all people all in gold. society. Mm. No, like quite literally. Certainly the Iron Golds. And I mean, even to an extent that the Pixies, they are all products of this trauma wrought upon their society by people who are victims of their own trauma and are so deep in it, they can't see any way out of it. Mm-hmm. Or even yeah. that there's a, a possibly another way to be. Well, I mean, in book one, Roke, blood begets blood begets blood begets blood. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. that's that's the way it's always going to go. And as soon as they've lost Lysander, they know they're screwed. But Darrow's like, mm, take us near this much bigger battleship, the Vanguard. And the Blue's like, <laughs> that would cause our chances of survival to decrease by, and hey, Star Wars reference. Because yeah. Darrow says, never tell me never the tell odds. The odds. <laughs> <laughs> And then, because Darrow is, you know, the leader and all, apparently, or despite everything, 
Everyone turns to look at him, not because he said something strange, but because they've been waiting to turn and look at him. They've all been silently praying he would marshal a plan, even Augustus. He remembers that Eo told him people would always look to me. She believed he had some quality, some essence that gave hope. He does not usually feel it in himself. He doesn't feel it now. He just feels like dread. He feels angry, petulant, selfish, guilty, sad, alone. But everybody's looking to him. So as much as he's just a liar in a carved body, he has to act. That's when him and Severo go and load themselves into the star shells. And honestly, the description of them loading into the star shells and launching them into the Vanguard is just, uh, don't shit your suit, man. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Don't look up. You might break your neck. Yeah. Get into this tin can and hope. Seriously, I think that at times I feel a little bit pulled out of this series because of the lack of science, I guess. There's no science in this series at all, other than they don't have faster than light travel. Yes and no, but I mean, I think at this point in particular, it's very, like, visceral. The whole description of him and Severo putting themselves into the star shells. This was one of those times where as much as I feel pulled out of the series sometimes because of the lack of, maybe not science is the right term, but like actual sci-fi and like reasoning, they launch themselves into the bridge of the Vanguard and Victor kissing Darrow on the lips and everything. Oh, well, I mean, it was it was clear from the jump that Victor had a thing for him. Oh, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. But this fandom has this big thing about them loading themselves into the star shells. And I mean, Darrow was almost going to do it at the beginning of this book and then he got stopped. But now there's no one to stop him. There's no school to say, boop, your controls are gone. It's him and Severo. If you're going to do this, I would have thought they do it with more than two, actually. I always thought that was a weakness of the plan. If you're going to do this desperation attempt to drive the star shells right into the bridge, why would you only have two? Why wouldn't you do four or six or eight? I mean, you have them theoretically the people that they have on the ship are not people darrow is willing to sacrifice and i don't even like he's not even willing to sacrifice Severo. Severo just insists on being part of the whole thing in terms of descriptive things in this series i've really always liked this scene where it describes kind of almost piece by piece them being loaded into the star shells and Darrow thinking about what can happen, what can't happen. And again, Severo's there with him and he's just like, oh, but my friend, my friend, I don't know. I've always liked this particular scene. I don't love Victor kissing Darrow on the lips because Victor deserves better, honestly. I I don't know. I have a somewhat different opinion. Oh, uh, Mustang deserves better than Darrow, too. Like, literally everybody deserves better than Darrow, but that's my rude Darrow opinion. I am one of the few Red Rising fans who is just about Darrow, and I have been from day one. Oh, wow. All right. I'll get into that after we conclude the series. Yes. Okay, now that Darrow and Severo has straight up arrived on an enemy warship, it's time to get into chapters 21 through 24. As Darrow and Severo burst into the Vanguard's bridge, Darrow realizes his weapons are damaged. And also, he doesn't feel so hot because there's something wrong with his arm and he totes has a concussion. (laughs) But they persevere, ridding themselves of the obsidian's grays and golds who stand in their way. 
Darrow knows he has control of the bridge because he and Sever are there to enforce that control. But he also knows that he needs to do something about everyone else on the ship because they're just two dudes and the shuttle full of their allies needs a safe place to land. So he sends out a message announcing the ship is now called the Pax. Insert necessary Pax yell here and that he has claimed the ship as a spoil of war. He reminds the low colors on board that normally when one has captured the bridge of an enemy-held vessel, they would simply vent the ship. But instead, he believes that those who actually run the ship can be his salvation. That if they choose Darrow as their commander and overwhelm the golds who think they are expendable, he will reward them. And deep breath here because, wow, the low colors listen. They fucking rise. The problem is there's still a group of golds and obsidians trying to cut into the bridge, but then Darrow receives a communication request from an obsidian, a stained nonetheless, so the best of the best, asking if he is a god. And when asked if you are a god, you always say yes. yes. <laughs> and how he took the ship if he isn't even a praetor. So Darrow introduces himself and replies that he took the ship by flying in from the abyss with just one companion. When Darrow looks back at the HC monitor, the obsidian larger than any obsidian has ever seen is cutting down his enemies. By the time he is done, the hole that has been burned through the door is large enough for a face-to-face -face introduction. This obsidian is Ragnar Valeris, a much-celebrated fighter, and he offers Darrow his stains. Darrow has his concerns, but he accepts Ragnar into his service. And his first command is that Ragnar save his friends, and in return, Darrow will owe him a debt. While the low colors are rising and Darrow's new servant is off to keep his allies safe, one question that remains is who is in charge of the bridge? There's a lot of me, me, me nonsense from the blues who are present, but in the end, it's a blue named Orion who catches his attention. While her sect intended for her to be a boy, which is why she has a boy's name, as Severo notes, she apparently surprised them, and while her fellow blues claim she is emotional and not fit to run a ship, Darrow and Severo like her, and so she assumes control of the packs. With the ship in hand, Darrow and Severo finally get to go meet up with their friends. Sadly, Quinn didn't make it, and Roke and Severo, who both loved her, are understandably upset. Darrow isn't sure what to do next, but Mustang tells him that Severo needs him. And while he questions this, because Roke probably does as well, she insists that it's Severo he should go to. Now, there's a lot Mustang doesn't know, but in this situation, she was right. Darrow finds Severo in a washroom where they talk about Quinn a bit, but Severo soon changes the scope of the conversation, because while Mustang sent for him in the Howlers, he was contacted by someone on one of his layovers. He tries to make Darrow guess, but no, it wasn't Lorne, it wasn't Fitchner, and Severo tells Darrow that trust goes both ways, and he has to take a leap. Pause for dramatic effect. It was Ares! <laughs> so Severo knows that Darrow is a son, and he also brought a message that reveals how Harmony betrayed them and is running her own bullshit campaign. Surprise, surprise. Not the fact that Severo knows who and what Darrow is, because, oh yeah, he also knows that he's carved red, is such a huge release for Darrow that he breaks down sobbing. After they have their long talk, though, Darrow also ends up having to face Victra. He finally begins to see the depth of her feelings for him, but he's all hot and bothered for Mustang, so he turns Victra down by referring to her as a sister. Ah, <sighs> sigh. This obviously isn't the greatest response, but he actually patches things up by insisting they reintroduce themselves, telling her that, contrary to popular belief, he doesn't eat glass and loves music and dancing and is very fond of fresh fruit, especially strawberries. In turn, 
Victor offers that she likes the way stone smells before rain, and she actually hates the color gold. After they part, Daryl moves to the mess hall where he, surprise, finds Mustang. A brown serves them a huge brinner, aka breakfast and dinner, platters. While you think they discuss what needs to happen next, their conversation instead involves Mustang bringing up her thoughts on the terrible treatment of low colors and the revelation that intercolor love is a thing that has always happened. The society just silences it in every disgusting way they can. In the end, though, the conversation ends with a simple warning. Mustang telling Darrow that she knows he is in league with her brother, who can't be trusted, which, like, duh. But when Darrow returns to his quarters, who's waiting? The Jackal. They reassure each other of their alliance, and their conversation ends when Darrow claims that he thinks he knows how to fan the flames and spread war, and asks, What can your network tell me about the shipyards of Ganymede? Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so holy shit, literally everything that happens with and everything about Ragnar. 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 Uh, I mean, I like the guy, and this is mostly unjust, but I am going to refer to him a little bit as uh, two packs, too furious. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, that's so good. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Daryl knows that it's Julii ships, aka Victro's family, by the way, that take obsidian slaves from their home. He recognizes that Ragnar is not practiced at hiding his hate. It is cold as the ice the man was born into but that's also interesting because the obsidians the things that they're taught the way they live golds after the dark revolt by the obsidians which was the only uprising to ever actually threaten their reign they took the obsidians history their technology they wiped out an entire generation and gave their race the poles of planets, the religion of the Norse, and told them that the golds were gods. So it's been a few hundred years, but it's interesting that even after all that time, Ragnar does think of Darrow as a god, but Darrow also notices that Ragnar hates this life. Even as he is asking if Darrow will accept his stains, leaning forward, voice plaintive, a strange worry creasing the corners of his mouth. There's a lot of back and forth. Darrow recognizing that Ragnar hates this, but also seeing that Ragnar needs it, abuse. No, yeah, seriously. Although I do wonder, I do wonder if at any point two obsidians were sitting together, because we do know that they can be more talkative than Ragnar. We're sitting together, and one of them looked at the other and said, yeah, you ever wonder why no one else worships Thor and Odin? And the other obsidians <laughs> go, yeah, I have noticed this. We are the only ones. They're pulled from this place where that's what they're taught, and right. they're immediately thrown into the life of... I mean, because here's the thing, like, Ragnar is touted as this great warrior, but he was also... He was a pit fighter. He was a Right, gladiator. I don't know if he was considered a great warrior. He was considered a gladiator. He was a great warrior, though, because that's just what the Ash Lord reduced him to. He was a great warrior, is a great warrior, but for a while, the Ash Lord reduced him to being a gladiator, basically. Yeah. What always bothered me about the whole concept of the Obsidians in this world is why would the Golds engineer a race that is stronger than they are? I still don't get the logic behind it. I kept saying they're bred to kill golds. Why would the golds breed something to kill them? It's bad enough when they have their own fights with each other. but Because they want an edge in their constant, constant civil wars. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to say at the beginning, they were probably 
No, I mean, certainly made as shock troops. Shock in the sense of being very capable and, and like running into a city and taking over things very quickly, but also because most humans, you know, most regular undesigned humans <laughs> are probably going to look at this and be like, what? And then die. They tamped them down for sure in the beginning too, just not enough. I but think was it, the problem. Yeah, but in this girl, there are no normal humans. Everyone is genetically engineered. They're just genetically engineered in certain ways. Well, and now it's it's they're not even engineered. It's just those traits were locked into their DNA. So yeah, and I think I think their society at the moment is just like let's keep them occupied with these carved creatures and harsh yeah, living right. environments, and let's just take a few of them at a time for our bodyguards for you know this for that. I don't think they let them like group in large enough formations to really get the juices of rebellion flowing. Yeah, well, not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are they going to do it with? Spears and swords? On razor swords? Yeah. <laughs> Beyond Ragnar, as Darrow watches the lower colors that he incited to rise up against the golds who were in charge of the vanguard, he thinks something furious grips these colors. And though they die, I feel the flickering of rebellion as I give them permission to do what they've wanted to do their entire lives. It's there, even if you never see it till the end, that spark of individuality, of freedom. The scenes of him watching them over the HC, watching the oranges and the browns and everybody just he gets yeah. in trouble for it later, but man, it was worth it, right? <laughs> well, I, I mean, honestly, I am a little bit surprised that after this, all of Gold Society didn't, well, almost all of Gold Society didn't unite behind killing Darrow. I think because in this instance, I mean, even Augustus, like, he sees Darrow did what he had to do to gain that ship. He doesn't agree with it, but for sure, without that help, they oh, yeah. would have failed. And Augustus, you know, realizes better this than me being dead. Right. So Augustus is on that point. But I think all of the other golds who are like, he did what? Would have been like, oh, no, he's got to go. He is dangerous. So you're talking about all the golds on the other side. I'm talking about all of the other golds who are even neutral. I'm even talking about maybe the Telemannuses. No, the Telemannuses no. are... No, they're... No, you're right. Yeah. They're, they're because... better than that. But just the fact that he's like... He encouraged the low colors to rebel against us. He must be stopped. But I think, yeah, it's only Augustus's power and the alliance of the Telemannuses that keep that from happening. Now, their shuttle is saved, but Quinn has died, which <sighs> Quinn was good people. Roke and Sever are very upset over her death. And Mustang tells Darrow he should go to Sever first, which A, smart girl. B, Darrow goes to Severo, like he should, because Mustang told him to. <laughs> like, please, yes, Darrow, go to Severo, your, like, actual true friend, and not Rogue, who has already been mad at you for everything. Like, whatever. Darrow and Severo have a conversation about Quinn, how she cared for Severo, but never in the way he wanted her to. And Severo says that if any of them deserved to live, it was her. There wasn't a cruel bone in her body, but that didn't matter because yeah. it doesn't matter if you're good or evil. It's all up to chance, which, you know, I don't know yeah. if that's really the truth, but Darrow claims that it was chance they knew her at all chance that brought her to house mars but it turns out that it wasn't chance it was fitchner 
he traded a pick to get Quinn because he thought she would temper the others in House Mars and govern their anger. And then if Fitchner hadn't picked her, Severo believes they wouldn't have met her and she'd be alive. But Dara has a point because like eventually Quinn very likely could have, would have probably been part of their group anyway. As they collected slaves and then freed them, Quinn very likely would have chosen to be part of their group, chosen to follow Darrow, chosen to follow Severo, been a howler, you know, no matter what. TLDR, Rip Quinn. They have this whole sweet conversation, but the end result is the real important part because holy shit, turns out Severo has known that Darrow is the son of Ares and are red for like a while now and he's on board. I think that's because he's like, yeah, the society treated me like shit, too. Mm-hmm. He straight up says that, yeah. Yeah, what are we going to do? we going to blow it up? Okay, great. I think this is one of my favorite scenes in the book, just because Severo's like, shut the fuck up. Stop lying. Tell me the truth. After he's like, oh, well, maybe it was this person. Maybe it was this person. And he's like, no, say it. Give me another shit answer. Give me another lie. And I'm walking. Not only that, but I mean, Severo does actually say, my gold brethren have been trying to kill me since I was born. The only people who treat him decently are people who don't have a reason to, i.e. low colors and the lower level howlers. Now, Severo also is smart enough to realize that it's not his secret to share. Mm -hmm. Because Zero's like, well, should I tell everybody? And Severo's like, I mean... Some of the others might understand, but yeah. like, don't you ever tell Thistle or Roke. Yeah, that's huge for the storyline so far, because we've talked about how they've been going back and forth with Roke. Like, what do you think? What's he going to do? Is he going to spaz out? You know, like, what would he do if he found out? Your relationship's tenuous as is. Mm-hmm. And hearing someone like Severo, who is far more attuned to people than you would like Mm -hmm. expect him to be right he even says thistle wouldn't go along either and at this point thistle is a straight up howler but Severo still says don't believe that these two people would understand then dara's like are you sure you're you're okay with this and Severo's like no it feels good it feels good here in my heart despite all of the shit it feels good and then darrow just breaks down sobbing Mm -hmm. because for all this time he's been alone and now somebody he has every reason to trust Mm -hmm. from beginning to end is right there saying it's okay darrow having emotions sometimes is a good thing definitely yeah and the the one guy who might have understood he had to kill because that guy went a little crazy oh yeah uh titus titus Mm. yeah yeah i would say r.i.p titus but no nah Sometimes your crimes are too great no matter where you came from. He leaves Severo after crying his heart out, which again, just tear for it so much. <laughs> and he meets Victra, of all people, in the hallway. While he doesn't tell her anything, their conversation is also super great. It like, is. Dara admits it's hard knowing that Victra is Antonia's sister, which, for fuck's sake, yes. I can't imagine being in that position where it's like, I feel like I can trust this person, but also, whoa, their sister has fucked me over like several times now and is such a huge bitch. And like, how do I know she's not just in the same mindset as her family, right? Yeah, she's not playing the long game. Yeah. Yeah. But Victor keeps telling him like, I'm not Antonia. And then she looks like she wants to kiss him. 
Mm-hmm. And he's like, nope. Sister, sister. Yeah. Well, of course, she she tries harder, though. She's like, you're strange. Like, you love women, but you don't enjoy us. There's so much to enjoy. Do you even know how soft my skin <laughs> Victor is a fucking sex pot. And like, listen, I love Mustang because I respect Mustang, but I mm. love Victor because I would fuck Victor. <laughs> Victor would teach him some things. I believe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Victor would I teach think. me some things. <laughs> oh, golly. I think that's why I, I love her character so much is because, I mean, she, she says, I, I don't lie. I've never told a lie. And then she's also, uh, she's exactly who she is. She knows exactly who she is. She doesn't talk shit. Anything that she says is, is you know, the truth. And she's just a fucking badass. I feel bad for her that she's in love with Daryl because, again, Victor, you for can sure. do better. I mean, Mustang can't do, again, like I said, but Victor can also do better. Darrow kills that sexual tension by calling her sister. <laughs> You know, the fact that she thinks that he doesn't want her because he thinks she's, like, wicked or because he looks Mm -hmm. down on her. And thank fucking God, Darrow, he kind of takes a step back and thinks, okay, so I've got to see her separately from her bitch sister, Antonia, because, again, Mm -hmm. Antonia is a huge fucking bitch. But I love when they reintroduce themselves. Oh, so cute. Yeah, it's a... Love the smell before rain. It's a sweet moment. It really is. Darrow saying, you know, I love music and dancing, things that you wouldn't expect this mm-hmm. warrior to admit, and fresh fruit, strawberries, which from our perspective, it's like we know he was a red and he probably never tasted a strawberry before. I mean, I grew up going to strawberry fields and picking fresh strawberries with my family in Connecticut, mm-hmm. but that's not a thing that, like, you can get them from the supermarket. They don't taste the same. Oh, no. They do not taste the same as when you go to a field and you get your hands just stained with juice as you pick them right off the vine. And they're like kind of warm, like the summer air, and they taste like heaven. And that's what I picture he is thinking when he says he loves fresh strawberries. There used to be a field you could go to (laughs) in the town I grew up in. Where they would give you fresh picked strawberries for money. And now it's another strip mall. Progress. <laughs> I love that he tells her this. And I love that she's just like, I like the way stone smells before rain falls. But also mm-hmm. I hate the color gold. Green goes better with my complexion. <laughs> oh, Victor. Like, I'm so here for this friendship. And I heart it. And I heart Victor so much. I think it's kind of funny because Darrow's obviously like a bestie collector, you know? Severo's my bestie. I want Roke to be my bestie. I want this person to be my bestie. But like Victra's there the whole time like, hey, let me be your bestie and more. Well, you know, the, the easiest friendship. <laughs> that's why he's he's keeping his distance from her. Is I will say this. I don't think he necessarily goes about it the right way at all times. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he is not trying to do anything with Victor because he still has these feelings for Mustang, I think that's the right choice. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah like, agreed. Because agreed. he's doing right I, by her. He is. If, yeah. And I invite you to imagine for a moment what a jilted Victra would look like. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you think you had trouble before. <laughs> well, You know, honestly, I imagine a jilted Victor being like a jilted me. And it's scary. Okay. Just saying. That's why I love Victor so much because I identify. The worst parts of me are Darrow and the best parts of me are Victor, but sometimes they combine into like a monster. 
And that's why I hate Darrow, but love Victra. Hate is a strong word. I don't like Darrow because I recognize so much in him that I don't like in myself. And with Victra, I recognize in her so much that I love about myself. Whereas Mustang is like the person I want to be. I don't want to use this terminology because it's it, she's really not. And a lot of Mustang's gifts makes sense considering the family that she's born into so it's it's hard for me to say that she's a mary sue because she's really not Mm -hmm. but she is sort of unattainable well i mean she's born into the augustuses but essentially raised by the telemonuses yeah so she has the best of both worlds because the telemonuses are ah. yeah but she has a bone deep sense of political savvy that it's not unbelievable again because of who she is but like any politician would kill to have that level of seemingly inborn like, oh, yeah, no, this is this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to do it. And speaking of Mustang, turns out that while in the service of the sovereign, she's been doing some digging through archives that include all sorts of information most people don't know. We get into that during their bacon and eggs chapter. Yeah. It's literally called bacon and eggs. And she talks about how one of her dissertations is about mistakes in the sociological manipulation theorems imposed by the board of quality control, including the chemical sexual sterilization of pinks, which I hate that Nami isn't here for this right now, because that was something that we touched on in our discussion in part one of this book, where Nami was going off about how awful everything about the pinks was. And I was like, oh, it gets worse. So the chemical sexual sterilization, that means that they can't actually feel pleasure. I could be wrong about that, but to me, that is basically like in Africa when they... Oh, the cutting of the rose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. That is what I'm 99.9% sure that's what that means. They are oh, not man. just forced into sex worker life by their birth, but they also had very little, possibly zero ability to enjoy sex. I'm going to be Jonathan for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> if I may. No! Yeah, go ahead. By doing that, they lose another measure of control over the pinks, I think. And also just, I don't want to start working blue, but it's just more fun if your partner's at least a little bit into it. For like, sure. It, 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 a little bit. Just a little bit. A little bit. You know, a lot. A, a lot. You know, it seems like having pleasure slaves who don't <laughs> feel pleasure is sort of defeating the purpose. And I'm done. And I feel gross. And I want to take a shower. No, I think that was tastefully said. I think you could have gotten a lot more crass. But I (laughs) I think that was well said. Yeah, who knows? I mean, society is icky from top to bottom. Because everybody guiding the society, when faced with a choice, went, what is the grossest, most inhuman way we could go? Okay, that way. These are people who are forced to have sex constantly. Don't even get the chance to physically enjoy it. Like, my argument to anyone... I I realize these people are all fictional who say, well, but no, the society is perfect the way it is. I would say the pinks. I would say that to anyone who refused to see the flaws in gold society. And then Mustang specifically says that this 
chemical sexual sterilization has led to a tragically high suicide rate within mm-hmm. the gardens. And Darrow notes her use of the word tragically because most golds, maybe most high colors, would have just said inefficient. And then she gets into the whole thing about how she found out how different colors fall in love and have themselves carved to alter their reproductive organs so that they can have children, which I'm over here just like, oh man, I would love to just be able to have sex with somebody and enjoy it and never have to worry about having a kid. (laughs) But, you know, I guess people like to have kids or something. So I mean, it's a thing. Some people enjoy it. I don't think anyone likes to have kids. I think they like having a kid. People want to have kids, though. People desire to have children. I understand that in a I'm separated from it and don't want it myself, but I understand the desire sort of way. And I mean, shit, that's actually what happens in life right now. Like if you really, really, really want to have a biological child and you're having trouble on your own, there are ways to help you have a child on your own. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. True. I've seen more than a few friends go through in vitro and whatnot, and it's a difficult road. And that's what I think of when I read this passage. People who spend a crap ton of money because they are in love with each other and all they want is a biological child of their own. I personally don't feel that, but I have watched people try and succeed and try and fail. It's a hard fucking thing. The other difference is in in this particular world, they are supposed to be biologically incompatible entirely. And they they do it anyway. Darrow says it's terrible. And Mustang tells him, and beautiful. No one knows of these people, she says. No one but a handful of golds with access. The human spirit tries to break free again and again. Not in hate like the dark revolt, but for love. They don't mimic each other. They aren't inspired by others who came before them. Each is willing to take the leap, thinking they are the first. That's bravery. And that means it's a part of who we are as people. Mustang, if you had any idea. Yeah. If only that was the last meeting he had with a member of House Mm. Augustus at that point. Because, like, it ends so nicely because Darrow's, like, as much as he's questioning, like, whether or not she can understand who and what he really is, everything about the bacon and eggs chapter, man. Super good. I don't even like bacon that much, but, you know. (laughs) Really? How can you not like smoked pig? I love bacon. I like some turkey bacon, honestly. I'm a turkey bacon person. I'm sorry just touching back on the pink thing which was just huge and it's it's just like this very shocking thing it, it makes you think about pinks that we've met and just their personalities evie you heard her story in part one where she was talking about how they basically have a thing in their head that inflicts pain constantly until they're mm. like 12 years old except for when they obey for me i thought it meant like it was like a, like gold to have like a button or something there was some way that goals yeah. could like turn it off when pinks obeyed mommy thought it was something different but i think that knowing that they are literally in this life of almost constant pain until they are 12 and they take that away, but then they're also sterilized so that they can't enjoy 
the thing that they are literally bred to do. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah, well, and programmed. Oh God, it's just so yeah, gross. It, and that's I guess that's I mean I don't know that it, it works as an argument against it in this particular world. That's my biggest argument against it. It just seems pointless. I don't see what purpose it serves. It's so. just another element of control. You're right. I don't disagree that it's maybe not the best one, but definitely the least clear. You know, yeah. when you look mm-hmm. at the other functions of the different colors, the pink is definitely like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know? it's like, what? I think they are very probably possibly the like slaves in the worst sense of the term. You know, like the reds at least get to have relationships and family. Yeah. Honestly, life for you is god awful unless you're a pixie. You can party your Are life you're saying away. life is bad for the peerless guard? Yes, I'm saying life is bad for the peerless guard. They're just all traumatized to think that it's a good thing. Quick conclusion. Unfortunately, that was not the last meeting Darrow had with a member of House Augustus that night because the jackal is waiting for him in his rooms. And jackal gonna jackal. And what's this about the shipyards of Ganymede? Stay tuned for our next episode, folks. The fact that Darrow is still just like, yeah, we're we're still buds. We're still friends. He tried to save Quinn. Yeah, he did. Maybe he's a good guy now. Maybe maybe there is good in him. I see it. (laughs) It's like Ray kissing Kylo at the end of uh, Rise of Skywalker. But yeah. No. What would Darrow and the Jackal's ship name be? Would it be Darryl. like a the Dackle? Or would it be like Darrow and Adrius? Like yeah, De- De- Darius. Darius? I think it's I think Adrius. Because then you can make jokes about somebody's wedding Dackle. <laughs> Regardless, Darrow, you're a fucking idiot. Yeah. Yeah, you big lug. This is not how you run a revolution. He's just like, awful at taking notes. Particularly the first few chapters when the Jekyll's like killing Leto. Oh, and then the, the second set of chapters where he was like, oh, there's the Jekyll, like yeah. not feeling bad about all those kids' heads getting stomped <laughs> yeah. on. And it's like, dude, take a note. <laughs> well, that's that's our Darrow. As we close out the episode, we just want to give a shout out to our Heroes to your patron, Tommy of the TKOK Podcast Network. Thank you so much for supporting us. Once again, I'm Tara along with Jonathan and guest hosts Seth and Steve. Don't forget that you can always hit us up at Sagas and Sass on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube, or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com with any comments or thoughts you might have. Thank you for joining us for Sagas and Sass. We will be back on Wednesday, November 30th to cover part three of Golden Sun. Thank you for listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Sagas and Sass.